Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. Last week we talked about the experience of Jacob in Genesis chapter 32 and his wrestling match with the angel of the Lord. This week I've been thinking about the fact that God changed Jacob's name on that occasion. And I want to look at Genesis 32:28 this morning as our text in a message that I've entitled When God Changes Your Name. Genesis 32 verse 28. You may recall as the day began to break, the angel said, let me go. And Jacob said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And the angel said, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And the angel said, thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men and hast prevailed. God changed Jacob's name. We know that it is characteristic in our culture when a man and a woman marry for the bride to take the husband's surname. Somebody says, well, that's just a cultural tradition, but actually it's more than a cultural tradition. It's a biblical principle. For in Genesis 5 verse 2, do you remember it says God created Adam and Eve male and female And it says, he called their name Adam. He gave the bride the husband's name. And there's a passage that I love very much in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 23, 6 says, this is the name whereby he, talking about the Messiah, shall be called the Lord, our righteousness. All capital letters. The Lord, our righteousness. Jeremiah 33, 16, that is 10 chapters and 10 verses later, it says, this is the name whereby she shall be called the Lord our righteousness. Somebody says, Brother Goins, that's a misprint. It says she, it should have said he. But no, that simply is a biblical example of how the bride takes the husband's name. We know that governments sometimes change a person's name. Babylon changed the names of Daniel And the three Hebrew children, Daniel's name was changed to Belshazzar, which had a religious implication to the Babylonian religion. And the three Hebrew boys, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, those were their Jewish names. Their names were changed to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those were their Babylonian names. So government sometimes changes someone's name. And sometimes in our society, a person chooses to legally change his or her own name. And I think the motives for these are varied. Sometimes there's a religious motive. Probably the most famous boxer of all time changed his original name, Cassius Clay, to a religious name. There's a great basketball player for the Lakers named Lou Alcindor, who changed his name for religious reasons to another name. Sometimes people change their name to identify themselves with their career. A professional football player some years ago named Chad Johnson, who wore number 85 for the Cincinnati Bengals, and he changed his name to Ocho Cinco, (laughs) 85, because I guess his identity was no bigger than his jersey number. People change their names for all sorts of reasons. Sometimes people change their names because they have an 
unfortunate name. I read in the Bible that Abraham's nephews, Genesis 22, verse 21, were named Huz and Buzz. I think if my parents had named me Huz or Buzz, I probably would change my name. Benjamin's boys were named Muppim, Huppim, and Ard. <laughs> I think I'd probably consider changing my name because that's an unfortunate name. Isaiah named his son Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 3. That name means quick pickings, easy prey. You know, the daughter of Eli named her son when he was born Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. It was such a sad day. There's a fellow in 1 Chronicles chapter 4, verse 9, whose mother named him Jabez, which means grief, because she bore him with sorrow. And Jabez prayed, Oh, that thou wouldst bless me indeed, that it may not grieve me. Lord, I don't want to be a cause of grief. I don't want to endure grief. I don't want to live up to my name. I don't want to be a Jabez. Lord, would you bless me and enlarge my coasts so that it may not grieve me in my life. When Jacob's son Benjamin was born, his wife Rachel died during delivery and she named him Benoni, which means son of my sorrow. But Jacob changed his name. He didn't want his son to grow up with that moniker, that negative moniker, and he changed his name to Benjamin, from Benoni to Benjamin, which means son of my right hand, my right hand man. Sometimes people's names were changed because of a change in their circumstances. In the book of Ruth, Naomi returns husbandless and childless, only with her daughter-in-law Ruth with her from the land of Moab, where they've sojourned for a period of time. And when she gets back into town, the people say, it's Naomi. And she said, call me not Naomi, which meant pleasant and delightful, but rather call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. She changes her own name because of her circumstances. Now you might ask this morning, Brother Goins, what's in a name? Well, to us, a name is simply a mark of distinction, a label, a way to distinguish you or me from somebody else. This is my name. This is the label that I wear. But in the Bible, a person's name was more than a label. It served actually one of three purposes. Number one, sometimes children were named with a name that had to do with a particular characteristic at their birth. Esau was named Esau because when he was born, he was very hairy. The word Esau means hairy. And Jacob, the man in our text this morning, his name meant heel catcher or deceiver, hoodwinker, because his hand reached forth and grabbed a hold of the heel of Esau, and his parents named him heel catcher. And of course, he lived up to that name. Number two, Bible names were a profile of that person's character. And number three, as a prophecy for the future, parents would often name a child in hope that the child would grow up to the name. But our text indicates an occasion in which God changed somebody's name. What is thy name? He said, Jacob, thy name shall be called no more Jacob but Israel. And there are several such occasions in Scripture in which the Lord changes somebody's name. I think of this wonderful Thrilling passage in the 62nd chapter of Isaiah, verse 2. And the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness, the Lord says, and all kings thy glory, and thou shalt be called by a new name which the mouth of the Lord shall name. A new name. 
which the mouth of the Lord shall name. Verse 4, thou shalt no more be termed forsaken, neither shall thy land be termed any more desolate, capital D, but thou shalt be called Hephzibah, and thy land Beulah, for the Lord delighteth in thee. Hephzibah means delight. And thy land shall be married. Beulah means married. You see, my friends, God changes people's names sometimes. And I want to give several biblical examples in the moments before us this morning and offer three reasons that God changes someone's name. Number one, to mark the change that grace has made in a person's life. There's an individual in the New Testament named Saul of Tarsus. And Saul of Tarsus first appears in Acts chapter 7 at the stoning of Stephen. And at his feet, they have laid their garments, and he's keeping their garments and consenting to the death of Stephen while that young man is martyred. Saul of Tarsus appears again in chapter 9 when God meets him on the road to Damascus, you know the story, don't you? Saul is on the way with papers in hand to bind the saints and to cast them into prison. But almighty love arrests that man. And he sees a light brighter than the noonday sun. And he's struck to the ground and he says, Who art thou, Lord? And the answer comes forth, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. And Saul of Tarsus, may I say, is transformed by the power of divine grace. May I say that Saul, that name, probably was a reference to King Saul, who was of the tribe of Benjamin. You know, Saul of Tarsus was a Benjamite. Philippians chapter 3, as he gives us his pedigree, says he was of the tribe of Benjamin, the same tribe that gave Israel its first king, King Saul. And it's very likely that his parents named him Saul, boasting Israel's first king. That was his birth name, a kingly name. But you know, from Acts 13 onward, he's never called Saul again. He's called Paul. And the name Paulus means little or small. The man Saul, who was like a king, if you please, a very important person, now is increasingly small and little in his own sight. He's humble now because the Lord has dealt with him by his grace. And again, from Acts 13 onward, he's never called Saul again. He's only called Paul. Now, the Bible doesn't specifically tell us that God changed his name. We do know that they began to refer to him not by his birth name, but by his name Paul, which means little or small. Now, I want to say, dear friends, if the Lord has dealt with you and me by his grace, one of the first characteristics in our lives is going to be this sense that I'm not that important. I'm not a king, I'm not a potentate, I'm not a VIP. But we'll be little and small in our own eyes and recognize that apart from the grace of God, I am nothing, I have nothing, and I can do nothing. In fact, there are three statements by Paul in the New Testament at different moments in his history. The first one, early on, he says, I am the least of the apostles, 1 Corinthians 15. That's a humble statement. The next one is in Ephesians 3.8, I'm less than the least of all saints. When it comes to the preachers, Paul says, I'm the least of the preachers, least of the apostles. But then he gets even more specific, and he says, when it comes to the church members, the saints, I'm less than the least of all the saints. 
That was said a few years later in his life. Notice how his sense of his own importance is getting smaller and smaller. And then near the end of his life, he says this, I'm the chief of the sinners. Now, when it comes to the preachers, I'm the least. You say, well, but you're still a preacher. You're better than the rest. He says later in his life, I'm less than the least of all the church members. And then he says, of all the sinners, I'm the worst of the bunch. And you see, as he grew in grace, his self-assessment became increasingly small. You see, he saw himself as lower and lower, less and less. May I say, dear friends, as you and I grow in grace, we'll never get over the fact that God would be kind to the likes of somebody like me. We won't grow to feeling like we're more and more important, but we will be constantly, increasingly more and more amazed that God would save a sinner like me, the chief of the sinners, you see. So his name is changed, and it's changed, I suggest, to mark the change that grace has made in his life. May I say, when God's grace touches your life, when it touches my life, it makes a dramatic, radical change. You go from being dead in sin to alive in Jesus Christ. And now a new principle resides within. Yes, indeed, you're still left with the vestiges of your old nature. You still have the old you that you have to contend with and battle with all your life. But I want to say you're a new creature in Christ Jesus from that time forward. And grace made the difference in your life. It's what made the difference in Paul's life, wouldn't you say? Took him from a kingly name, proud of his family birthright, but now he sees himself as increasingly more and more small in his own sight. So one reason God changes someone's name is to mark the change that grace has made in your life. Number two, sometimes God changes a person's name as a prophecy of the special future that he has in store for that person. If you look at Genesis chapter 17, here's a chapter of new names. You have a new name for God in Genesis 17, as God reveals himself by the name God Almighty, or the Hebrew name El Shaddai. I am the Almighty God. It's the first time in the Bible God calls himself El Shaddai, or Almighty God. There's a new name for Sarah in this chapter. Her new name means princess. It's Unclear what her original name Sarai meant. God changes her name to Sarah, which means princess. But there's a new name for Abram in Genesis 17. If you'll notice in your King James Bible, his name is spelled A-B-R-A-M up to this time. From Genesis 12 to Genesis 17, it's Abram. But beginning in Genesis 17, God changes his name from Abram or Abram to Abraham. Now, his name Abram meant great father, but God changes his name to Abraham, which means father of a multitude, not just a great father, but now father of a multitude. And I've often thought that it must have been very uncomfortable for Abram when he met someone on the street and they asked him his name. What is your name? My name is great father. And the next question, of course, would be, where are your children? And he would have had to admit, I don't have any. <laughs> For he and Sarah, his wife, were childless. If that was not bad enough, God changes his name in Genesis 17. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, 
But thy name shall be called Abraham, for a father of many nations have I made thee. Notice the past tense. Have I made thee? Not will I make you, but I have already made you. And he still didn't have any children. Now we know that our God can call the things that are not yet as though they already were. He knows what he intends to do with Abram. He intends to make this man whose name meant father into a father of many nations. This is a prophecy of the special future that God has in store for Abram. May I say God has a special future in store for you. And you might say, Brother Mike, what is that future? Will I be a millionaire? It's better than that. The special future he has for you, my friends, is that you will be perfectly conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's predestinated you to that end. One day you will be glorified and you will be with him in heaven. Heaven is your home. You're a joint heir with Jesus Christ. What belongs to him belongs also to you. Heaven is yours. And my beloved, that's your bright future. And you know when God changed Abram's name to Abraham, though it didn't appear that it was forthcoming because he still didn't have any children. But Abram believed that promise. And in Romans chapter 4, verse 17, we read the Apostle Paul's theological take on this episode when God changed his name. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. That's his new name. Before whom Abraham believed, even God who quickeneth the dead. So the God in whom he trusted is a God who can quicken the dead. And of course, Sarah's womb was dead. Abraham was past the age of fathering children. Sarah was barren. But God in whom he trusted the God who changed his name to father of many nations, Abram trusted this God because he's a God who can quicken the dead and who calleth those things which be not as though they were. I love that expression. Who against hope believed in hope. That is when there was no reason to be hopeful for the future, he still believed in hope because he believed in God. That he might be the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead, which when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Don't you love that thought? God is able to perform what he's promised. God is able. Paul said, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able. Are you persuaded of that today, dear friend? That the God who promised is able to fulfill his promises. So God changed Abram's name to Abraham as a prophecy of the special future that God had in store for him. Abram believed that promise that name change had the effect of bolstering his faith so that even though he still didn't have any children, yet against hope he believed in hope and staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, giving glory to God. But then we come to our text this morning and we find the third and perhaps most pertinent reason to our lives right now that God sometimes changed people's names in the Bible. And we're not talking about government changing somebody's name or someone changing his or her own name. We're talking about God changing people's names like he did from Saul to Paul because 
of the change that grace had made in his life as he changed Abram to Abraham as a prophecy of the future that God had in store for him. The third reason God sometimes changes people's name is to picture the kind of person that God intends that individual to be. To picture the kind of person that God intends to make you into. To remake that person into a new kind of character, God sometimes changes people's names. I want to go to the New Testament and give you an example of someone whose name was changed by the Lord because God intended to do something spectacular in this individual's life. There was one of Jesus' disciples whose name was Simon. And we read about him in John chapter 1, verse 42. It says, Andrew brought his brother Simon to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. Jesus changed his name from Simon, which meant shifting sand, to Peter, or Cephas, which meant a stone. Now, what's the difference between shifting sand and a rock or a stone? The difference is one is very unstable, the other's weightier and more stable, right? God is saying to Simon that I am at work in your life, and I am going to remake you. Simon into a more stable person. The name change is the token of that fact. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 17, Jesus asks his disciples the question, Whom do men say that I the Son of Man am? And the answer was, Some say thou art Elias, some John the Baptist, some Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Notice how public opinion is all over the board. But then he asks this question, but whom say ye that I am? And that's the question that really matters. What do people think about Jesus? I'm telling you, dear friends, opinions are a dime a dozen. But here's the real question. What do you think about Jesus? And you know the difference between a, an unbeliever and a believer is the believer is somebody who's come to terms personally with who Jesus Christ is and what he's done and has embraced him personally. You say, well, some of my friends think he's a great teacher. Some of my friends think he's a guru. Some of my friends say he's a great prophet. But here's the question, what do you think about Jesus? Whom say ye that I am? And Peter speaks up as the spokesman for the group, and he says, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, Peter has often been described as the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth because he was constantly putting his foot in his mouth. He was constantly saying the wrong thing. He was very impetuous, but on this occasion, he got it right. Thou art the Christ. That is, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah. Remember, that was his original name. But he says, You've been blessed. For flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven, God, has made a difference in your life. God has shown you something that man could never show you. And may I say, if you believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, it's not because flesh and blood revealed it to you. It's not because mother or father or neighbor or friend taught you about Him. It's because the Lord taught you directly. He's taught you in the heart. As Hebrews chapter 8 says, they shall all be taught of God. 
from the least to the greatest. They shall be taught to know the Lord. Then Jesus says, but I say unto thee, thou art Peter. Notice he said, you've been blessed, Simon. And I remind you of your new name. I say unto thee, thou art Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now I said Peter's name means stone. And it does mean stone, as opposed to shifting sand. But there's a word play in verse 18 when Jesus said, I say unto thee, thou art Peter, that is Petros, that is you're a little stone. But upon this Petros, upon this rock, that word rock is Petros, it's the boulder, the bedrock. Now, you're Peter, you're not Simon anymore, I've changed your name, but I'm going to build my church not on you, Peter. You know, there's an entire branch of Christianity that says Peter was the first pope and that the church is built on Peter. I'm telling you, dear friends, that uh, the church is not built on Peter. That foundation's not stable enough. Now, God intended to stabilize him. God intended to work in him and to make him into a stronger and a more consistent and a more dependable individual. But yet, my beloved, the rock on which the church is built is no mortal man, but it's the Lord Jesus Christ and the revealed truth that he is the Christ the Son of the living God. It's the rock of revelation. God has revealed the truth that Jesus is God manifest in the flesh and that he's the Savior of sinners. And it's upon that revealed truth, that doctrinal basis, that we have a firm foundation for our faith. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. And that word, of course, tells you about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what I'm saying, my beloved, is... Even though the church was not built on him, yet still there is reference in Matthew 16 how that Jesus reminds him of his birth name, now reminds him of the name God gave him. I, but I say unto thee, thou art Peter. And upon the rock of revelation I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Isn't that good news, my friends? This world is becoming increasingly hellish. The gates of hell, may I say, are having their way in modern society. But I'm telling you, they will never succeed in defeating the cause of Christ. There may be a church shut down here or there, but the Lord will have a true witness in this world somewhere. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church that Jesus built. Simon's name was changed to Peter because this is a picture of the kind of person into which the Lord intends to remake him. God intended for him to be more stable, like a rock. Now maybe you say today, Brother Goins, haven't you ever heard the saying, you cannot make a silk purse out of a sow's ear? <laughs> what it means simply is that you can only do so much with the material you have to work with. You say, well, here's Simon. He's, uh, he's pretty shady. He's shifting. He's inconsistent. He's on and off. He's liable to say the right thing, then the next moment he's liable to say something that causes the Lord to say, get thee behind me, Satan. By the way, that, that's Matthew 16. After he said, thou art Peter, you know, you're more stable now because I'm at work in your life. Then Peter says, Lord, far be it from thee to go to the cross. And Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. He just called him the devil, <laughs> you know. So, I mean, he's, he's wishy-washy. Are you kind of like that? Kind of wishy-washy? I am. But I'll tell you, even though people say you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear, God can. 
God can do what is impossible with man. He can work. You say, well, there's, no, there's not enough raw material there. You, you know, you can only work with so much. But God can do the impossible. For Ephesians 3 verse 20 says that he is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think. I'm so glad to trust a God today, my friends, who can go above and beyond your dreams, your wildest imaginations, your prayers. God can do wonderful things with flawed human material. And that should be a great encouragement to each one of us this morning. Furthermore, while he's at work remaking that flawed individual into a stronger person, he's faithful to use those folks in his service, even though they're still flawed as the work of character reconstruction moves forward. We know that Peter was chosen to give the keynote address on the day of Pentecost, even after he had denied Jesus three times. You say, well, he'd repented. Yes, he had, but he still had a long ways to go as far as his spiritual growth was concerned, right? And that brings us back to our text. Last week, we talked about Jacob. His name means heel catcher. His parents gave him that name because he reached out and grabbed his brother's heel from the womb. And uh, they said, I, that, that, that's pretty shady. You know, I mean, you're, you're trying to take what belongs to him. You're trying to pull him back so that you can be first. And you know, his whole young career, most of his life, he's trying to look out for old number one. He's trying to put himself in front of other people. He stole his brother's blessing. He stole his brother's birthright. I mean, Jacob was a con artist. He was a schemer. He was a fraud from the get-go. He lived up to his name. But in Genesis 32, 28, God changed his name to Israel, which means God's prince, God's contender, God's conqueror. Because as a prince, you've had power with God and prevailed. You've won. Now, did Jacob win that wrestling match with the angel because Jacob was stronger than the angel? No, you know that uh, the angel touched the hollow of his thigh, right? He, the word touched in Genesis 32 means that he smote him. He did a heavenly karate chop on his thigh and dislocated his hip. And it left him with a limp the rest of his days. What a unique story. Jacob didn't win this because he overpowered. He, he didn't pin the angel and the referee counted one, two, three matches over. You're the winner. Jacob did not prevail because of his own strength. He prevailed. He won through surrender. And when the angel said, what is thy name? Jacob said, honestly, I am Jacob. He admitted to his character flaws. I've been a trickster all my life. I've been a con man. I've been a fraud. I'm not proud of it. My name is Jacob. Now, you may remember earlier he told his father when his father said, what's your name? Who is it? He said, I am Esau, thy firstborn. He lied. But on this occasion, when he's wrestling with the angel, he admits, my name is Jacob. But he says, I won't let you go unless you bless me. He hung on to the Lord for dear life. And he said, I'm not going to just give up completely. I'll give up the wrestling match, but I won't stop holding on to you unless you bless me. And by the way, isn't that a wonderful thought to not let the Lord go until he blesses you? In your prayers, my friends, don't just pray one time or two times and say, well, I give up. Never mind. It's probably not doing any good. Hold on. Persevere in prayer. Keep on praying. 
Keep trusting. Keep hoping to the very end. Don't let your beloved go. In the Song of Solomon, the Shulamite says, after she loses her beloved in chapter 3, she goes to the watchman and she says, Have you seen my beloved? And she said, It was but a little that I passed from them that I found him whom my soul loveth. And by the way, the watchmen are pictures of the gospel ministry. And if you've lost your beloved, if you can't feel close to the Lord, if it seems like there's a barrier and an obstacle between you and your Savior so far as daily fellowship is concerned, my beloved, may I say the best place you can go is to the watchman. Perhaps just a little after you leave them, after they've given you directions, you'll find him again, whom your soul loveth. And she says, when I found him, I held him and would not let him go. There's a hymn we sing sometimes that says, I hold my Savior in my arms and will not let him go. I'm so delighted with his charms. Oh, my beloved, may I say, if you know anything about that experience, you understand why Jacob said, I, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. I've got to have a blessing. And what was the blessing the angel gave him? He says, I'll give you a new name. He changed his name from Jacob. What is thy name? Jacob. From henceforth thy name shall be called Israel, for as a prince thou hast had power with God and prevailed. I want to say this morning, my friends, that God is in the business of reconstructing character in your life and mine. Though Jacob was brought up in a spiritual home and had all of the advantages of a godly rearing, his ideas of God evidently through the early years of his life, were only second-handed. And he was woefully immature, spiritually speaking, for many, many years. And this name change at the Brook Jabbok in Genesis 32 reflects God's view that Jacob has changed. But you know, still, Jacob doesn't seem to recognize the change. We can't hardly see it. But God knows that Jacob is growing by the way, you're not always the best measure of your own spiritual growth. Like a little child standing in front of the mirror and, you know, says, I'm not growing, I'm not growing, I'm not growing. Then you go to the family reunion and Aunt Susie says, my, how you've grown. And you say, well, I've been looking in the mirror every day. It doesn't appear that I'm growing, but you see, she can see the change. Other people can see growth in you and me better than we can see it in ourselves. Jacob did not even really recognize at this point that he was changing, but God knew that he was changing and he reminded Jacob three chapters later in Genesis 35 verse 10 we took our text in Genesis 32 God reminded Jacob in Genesis 35 verse 10 of his new name God said to him thy name is Jacob thy name shall not be called anymore Jacob but Israel now he's already told him that but he reminds him of it three chapters later and he called his name Israel because Jacob did not seem to recognize the change by the way, in 2 Kings 17, verse 34, there's an interesting account here of the nation of Israel who were practicing syncretism. Now, syncretism is the idea that people have more than one God. And in 2 Kings chapter 17, the people were worshiping the Lord and then they were serving Baal. But I want you to notice in verse 34 of this chapter, 2 Kings 17, verse 34, it says, they feared the Lord, verse 33, and served their own gods. They feared the Lord, and then they served their own gods. That's, that's the definition of a syncretistic religion. They feared the Lord and served their own gods after the manner of the nations whom they carried away from thence. And to this day, they do after their former manners. They fear the Lord, 
Neither do they after their statutes or after their ordinances or after the law and commandments which the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. The children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. God reminds these people, these syncretistic Israelites, that I changed Jacob's name because he had turned from his half-hearted service to God, and you need to turn from your half-hearted service to God. Now, I've been trying to say, dear friends, that a name change reflects a change of direction, a change of character, and it speaks of God's work in process in your life and mine. Jacob was a work in process. And by the way, you are a work in process, aren't you? And I am too. Have you been where you are right now so far as your maturity and understanding, your consistency? You say, well, I still have a long way to go. But have you been here for many years? Or has it taken a bunch of, uh, you know, a few bumps in the road and a few trials and difficulties? Are you growing? Are you making progress? Now, I know when a person is saved, that's not something progressive. That's something instantaneous. My beloved, when it comes to practical sanctification or growth in grace or character transformation into Christ's likeness, that's something, my beloved, that takes a long time. It's a work in process. You know, even Paul, the great apostle Paul says, I count not myself to have apprehended. I'm not there yet. I haven't arrived. I'm still in process. My beloved, I'm glad to tell you that even though you feel like you're making small progress in spiritual growth, I want you to remember that God is at work. That's what Romans chapter 12, verse 2 is talking about when he says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed, be changed by the renewing of your mind. God, my beloved, is sanctifying you and me so far as our growth and character formation is concerned to make us more Christ-like. I hope I'm more like Jesus today than I was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. I hope I am. I hope that I'm not as easily rushed off my feet by trials. Now, there have been a few times when I've had a trial and I thought, I am full grown, I'm spiritually mature. And then a trial would come along and I'd feel like I I'd, I'd, hadn't learned the first lesson. I needed to go back to learn my ABCs again. But I'm glad to tell you, my beloved, that God is faithful to work in you. And when we get to Hebrews 13, we will read, these words, may God make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working present tense in you, that which is well-pleasing in his sight. This is what we mean when we speak of practical sanctification, that God is at work in your life right now to make you more and more holy. He's turning Jacob's into Israel's as his blessing upon your life. Are you a prince with God this morning? <laughs> I feel more like a Jacob, but I'm glad to believe that he is working in my heart to grow me. You know, he's knocking off some rough edges here and there. Some of you woodworkers know that you have to take a plane and knock off the rough edges, and you have to whittle, and you have to shape, you know, before they can fit the pieces together. God is whittling on you and working on you, isn't he? Through some of your troubles and trials and through some of the vicissitudes of your life hasn't God been at work and every time we hear preaching God is working in us to change our thinking and to help us be more devoted and to make the changes we need so that we can restart with a new determined effort to follow Jesus instead of doing our own thing 
God is at work in your life. Thank God that he changes our names. What is your name this morning? Bunyan's immortal work, Pilgrim's Progress, has as its protagonist, its main character, a fellow named Christian. Christian, that was his name. Follower of Christ. But you know, before the Lord changed him, do you know what his name was? Graceless. Graceless. I used to be graceless. But now, by the grace of God, I'm trying to follow Jesus. My friends, I hope that's your name as well. If it is today, if God's made a change in your life, and if he's at work in you to change you more and more, so far as your thinking and conduct and behavior is concerned into Christ's likeness, but you haven't yet confessed him publicly in gospel obedience and united with the church, you come forward this morning as we stand to sing an appropriate hymn. Give me more strength to hold.